Paul is continuing this theme of uh, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. Um, we even have that discussion about the word scruples. I don't like that word. I know Harvey likes it, but I, I you know, it's, to be honest with you, um, I'm not, I really don't understand why the, the, the translators use that word for this particular text. Um, in the English Standard Version, it says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Um, they substitute the words scruples um, and use the word failings. And it's, uh, it's the, uh, I, I actually looked it up. I looked it up in a, in a dictionary, see if I can, I can find it here. Um, but it, it talks about this idea uh, the word scruples, it, just, it talks about this idea of a, of a restraint. Now, I'm talking about the English here. I'm not talking about the Greek, okay? But it's talking about a restraint and this idea of a moral restraint that you won't do something. In other words, it really runs close to common sense. Well, for some people. But here in the text, it's talking about really the weakness of the weak, now, again, I don't know why they use the word scruples, because in the English, it really does mean something else. Um, but this word in the Greek, it mean, it's the word uh, adunatos, um, A-D-U-N-A-T-O-S, if you're writing it in the English. And it really pertains to uh, a lacking or a, a capability uh, of functioning that is inadequate or powerless, uh, it's used a few times in the scriptures. Jesus referred to it in the book of Matthew, or actually used the word in the book of Matthew. I just threw the, the, uh, uh, the reference in my notes. I don't have it uh, uh, typed out, but it's Matthew 19.26. And he's talking to his disciples. And as always, they're totally perplexed by what he's teaching, Right? Um, I don't think any of us would have probably done any better. But in Matthew uh, 19, 26, it, it, it tells us that Jesus looked at them and, and he said, with man, this is impossible. Same Greek word here that's translated weakness in the, in the um, New King James or um, the different word in the ESV, um, failings. So with man... This is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. What's interesting about Matthew 19 in, in, in that particular verse, verse 26, it said, with man, all things are impossible. It's the word uh, adunatos, right? And in the Greek, whenever you put the A, which is actually the, the, the letter alpha, but whenever you put the A in front of a word, it means the opposite of or the negative of. For instance, we use the word Christ, which refers to the Messiah, but then we refer to the opposite of Christ is whom? The Antichrist. We use the word anti. In the Greek, they don't say anti. They just use the, the, word, the letter alpha. So it's a comparison here where he says, with, with man, uh, everything is impossible, but with God, everything is possible. Is using the term uh, dunatos which is a dunatos, means impossible, 
dunatos means possible. So you see how it's not really a play on words, but it's a polar opposite. Because remember what I asked you guys last week? I said, who are the weak? And it was almost like a homework assignment in a way. Who are the weak? Um, We are, according to Larry. In in chapter 14, because remember when we looked at chapter 14, I said this really has very little to do with meat and vegetables and wine or water. It really has very little to do with that. We had in, in 14, the strong ate meat. Doesn't say why they did. Doesn't say what was the meat was all about. It could have been Jewish. Uh, well, it could have been pork, which would have offended the Jews. It could have been offered to idols and then sold on the meat market, which would have offended other people. We don't know because Romans 14 does not tell us. But you have the strong who eat meat. They, have, they, have, they recognize that all things are pure before God. And then the weak who eat vegetables only. Again, as I'll just say it again, it has nothing to do with whether you've made a decision that personally you're not going to eat meat or not. That's not what this is talking about. But it's it's talking about, I like what you said because we have strong moments and we have weak moments. That's what you basically said, Cindy. And so uh, at times we are going to be strong in certain areas and at times we are going to be weak in certain areas. And so the calling of the community of faith is to support those, those who are strong in certain areas will support those who are weak in certain areas. Now, I'm going to stray slightly away from the text here, slightly, but just be warned, okay? Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about this experience he had. We won't take the time to turn. I'll, I'll just paraphrase it. But he talks about this experience that he had where he, and he, he doesn't even refer to himself by name or even in the first person. He just says there was a man who had this experience. I don't know if it was in the body or out of the body. And, and he's, I believe a lot of commentators believe that he's talking about that he actually had an experience where he went to heaven. Either that or he had some type of a, a vision or something. It's unclear, but remember he said when he was there, he heard things that were unlawful to speak about. New King James uses the term utter, uh, uh, unlawful to utter, right? So he said, and then he makes it first person. He says, so that my pride would be not exalted above my measure, I'm given what? A thorn in the flesh. What was the thorn in the flesh? We don't know because it doesn't tell us. There's speculation, of course, but the scripture doesn't tell us. Um, And he finally comes down to this idea of this comparison between the strength of humanity to accomplish things, particularly even the work and will of God, and the weakness of man who becomes dependent upon the work of God to accomplish those things. And he says in verse 10 of of, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, he says, Therefore I take pleasures in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's what he's saying here. That's kind of paradoxical, isn't it? But at the same time, what is he, what is he, what is he saying? What is it, when you read that, um, remember what he said to the Corinthians, which I'm going to have to turn there because this popped into my head. 
I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, could be, t- I think it's 2 actually. Remember what he said to the Corinthians in the first letter. And he says, and when, verse 1, chapter 2, 1 Corinthians. And when, I'm going to read out the ESV, because I only brought two Bibles tonight, so sorry. Anyway, and when I came to you, brothers, uh, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He must have been a really a, a, an interesting guy to listen to. What's important about what I just read and what Paul just said here is in the first century, they didn't have internet. They couldn't go to the movies. And they didn't have televisions. They were too expensive. Um, anyway, and they didn't have cable. So they did, they had really two primary means of, of entertainment, which they really... Um, really held in high esteem. One was the theater. Okay, this is Greek. This is Greek culture. So one was the theater. The other was, and we see this also in the Book of Acts, where Paul goes to Mars Hill and he's speaking to the philosophers. And speech, oratory, giving speeches—that was a, that was a really strong form of entertainment in the first century. Again. You had no movies, you had no television, you had no internet. Uh, what do you do? You go out to, to where the, all the philosophers are going to hang out and you listen to them speak. And they, 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 some of them, it's actually, Aristotle actually wrote a book about it called Rhetoric. Uh, the ability to give speeches and to be able to, to speak to people and to, to be convincing. Uh, and, and that... Um, that idea was, was a very um, well-entrenched point of view in the Greek culture. Now, remember what I've said about the Greeks and the Romans? Basically, the Romans ripped off everything that the Greeks were all about, but they just changed the names from Greek to Latin, okay? So, um, anyway, basically, Roman culture is still Greek culture. So, when Paul says that I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and my speech and my message were not in, it says, persuasive words, I believe, in the New King James. The ESV says plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so... um, that's what Paul is, 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 in a sense, not directly talking about here in Romans 15. But I think what he, he's saying is, is that those who are weak among us really need to be um, esteemed because he recognizes that God comes alongside of and empowers the weak. Uh, how many of you ever heard of J.I. Packer? Okay, uh, I have. Uh, incre- he was probably one of the one of the better um, commentators, uh, Christian t- uh, biblical teachers that we had. He passed away only a few years ago, 
one of his last books, and he was, he was well-esteemed in other circles, just not this one, okay. But anyway, um, one of his last books that he wrote, I think it was actually the last book that he wrote, was Weakness is the Way. And this is a guy who is, weakness is the way. I don't know if you heard that. Uh, this is a guy who, uh, he passed away in his mid-90s. And he had been faithfully serving the Lord his whole life. And th- that was the book that he writes before he goes into eternity. Recognizing that when we're, actually it's, it, it was a great reference to tap into and I wrote my dissertation because I wrote it on um, spiritual formation for people who are chronic pain sufferers, which is people are not held in high esteem who suffer for chronic, in chronic pain. And so, um, so I think, I think in, in this, this passage here that we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of the weak and not to please ourselves, which is difficult because I don't know about you, but I kind of like to please myself. I mean, I, th- I think that's, that, that it's ingrained in us, you know. Um, and what I looked at, I looked at in the Greek on this, it's an imperative where it says, um, where it says, uh, let each of us please, referring to let each of us please uh, the other. It's an imperative. What's an imperative in, in the Greek? It's a command. So it's not an option. It's not a suggestion. And so uh, Paul is telling us um, not to please ourselves, but in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. All right. So this is where it gets sticky, and this is where it can get fun. Um, What is Paul telling us in verse 2? When you read that, what do you think? Anything. Put our neighbors first. What's interesting about this, I, and, and I think that's true, I think, um, I think that's what he's saying. The, the, big, the, the big question here is um, who are your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Now, we, remember I asked that question probably four weeks ago? And then, of all things, Jesus asked, was asked that question, remember? And of all things, what did he do with that question? He told the parable of the Good Samaritan. He tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, which just must have chapped their hides. Because, because of all people, it was the Samaritan was the one who actually cared for this other person. It, the, the priest didn't. The Levite didn't. They just walked past. Remember the guy who was beat up uh, by robbers and they basically left him for dead and the priest walks by and the Levite walks by and it was the Samaritan who actually stopped and cared for this person and made sure that this person uh, would be taken care of and when he took him to an inn. And, and uh, so it, it really, it really kind of really tipped Jewish thinking on its side because the Jews did not like the Samaritans, remember? 
And the Samaritans did not like the Jews either. It was a mutual dislike. So you, you can't feel sorry really for one group or the other. They just really did not like each other at all. And so uh, the, in some of the, the, the reading on this, on, on this particular verse, um, and in the context of this particular part of the book of Romans, bless you, it may be, maybe, and your mods will vary, but it may be referring to those of the household of faith, possibly, possibly. But don't use that as an excuse to ignore your neighbor because Jesus already told us in the book of Luke who your neighbor was. And, um, but notice what it says is, let each of us please his neighbor for good. Or the word his is there, but it's in italics. It's the pronoun's not in the Greek. So let's each of us please neighbors for good. What is that saying? You do things to build them up, right? Leading to edification, which is another word I don't always care for because who says edification except for in church? What does the word edification mean? You just said it, to build them up, right? Okay, um, But you're to do that for their good. So I, just, I, I started thinking about this. Uh, sometimes I was looking for loopholes and maybe even trying to understand what does it mean to do something for your neighbor for good? Um, Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. I have it in front of me in the New King James. It says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? How much more, right, will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Or in the parallel passage in the book of Luke, I think it's Luke, I think it's Luke 13, but don't hold me to that. Um, it says, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? It's a parallel passage. I think it's, it's, it's um, referring to the same thing. So if you, if you consider what Paul is saying in Romans 15, where we're to do good for, uh, we are to please the neighbor for good for building them up, and if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Father give good things to those who ask of him? That tells me that if we are truly going to do those things that are good for the building up of our neighbors, and I'm not even going to give you suggestions. I'll let you wrestle with those. That tells me that the good that we do, or the pleasing, let's back up a touch, the pleasing that we do for others, I think is intended by the Lord for it to be something that is empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit and not just something that we do because it's the right thing to do, right? And sometimes, but well, it's the right thing to do. And 
is it wrong to do something because it's the right thing to do? I, I don't think so. But, but the, the thing is, it, to me, in my thinking, it always goes back to the Sears catalog. All right? Okay, I, I know that the Sears catalog is not inspired by God. But somebody had something. And, and you all are old enough to remember this. In the older Sears catalog, you had things that were good, better, and best. Do you remember that? And, and good was, let's say, okay, we, have to, we have to date this, $24.95. Better was $33.95. And best was usually $90.95. You know, it was, you know, it was off the charts usually, right? Um, but I, I think in our walk with the Lord, I think we hopefully aim toward best. Sometimes we might only be able to do good or do better uh, because I think there's always a mixed motive. I think there's always a mixed motive in our pleasing our neighbors um, for good, for their building up. Because if, if, I think if truth be known, I think a lot of people would rather that their neighbors please them so that they would be built up, Right? What, we don't do that here. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think a lot of us actually, I think a lot of us really grab that. I think we understand that. I think where, where I'm, I'm taking it really a step further. And, and uh, I mean, I've had people want me to pray for them. And I, I pray for people when they ask me to pray for them. But at times, I really don't know what I'm supposed to be praying about. You know, they want, I'm going to exaggerate here, Okay. They want me to pray that they win the lottery, right? And, 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 and maybe God needs to drag them through bankruptcy court to humble them. You know, I mean, so I, 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 the Holy Spirit gives us a sense of discernment and wisdom that we are not capable of in and of ourselves. We're just not. And, and so... You know, it goes back to one of our former pastors, and this was another one that I actually liked. Uh, And I've told you about him before, that he would even pray about what parking space to park in when he would go to the mall. Okay, now we don't have malls here, right? Well, you you down down in Southern California. South Coast Plaza, all right? Okay, he would even pray about what parking space to park in because he, he saw the entirety of his life as moving from one divine appointment to another, and he wanted to be led of God's spirit to be available to whatever that was, right? Now, think less of me if you must, but I don't always pray about where I park, okay? I, matter of fact, I'm looking for the place that's closest to the door for a lot of reasons, but anyway. That, that was just a conviction that he had. And remember, we talked about this back in chapter 14 and, and somewhat in chapter 13, is, is what do we do with these convictions? And his conviction is to pray about every parking spot. So is he eating meat or eating vegetables only? Because my, I'm not. You know, see what I'm saying? I'm, I'm trying to apply this back into chapter 14. So, did, no? Did you wave at me? No. You did. No. Oh, your picture knows. Okay. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, sorry. All right. Um, so, 
Well, yeah, exactly. Now, now what happened? Boom. Okay, so this idea of your neighbor and, and uh, the one who is near you, or, and that's what in the Greek, this word neighbor translated, it means the one who is near or close by the neighbor, the fellow human being. Uh, Mark chapter 12 is also in Matthew 23, but Mark chapter 12, verse 31, it says, and, it, and Jesus was asked, what was the greatest commandment? Remember he was asked that, what was the greatest commandment? Do you guys remember what he answered? What? He actually said, you will love the Lord God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is, as the first, it's, it's like this, this is this, or the second, like it, in other words, like the first commandment, the greatest, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these, and he's referring to both of them. You look, and, 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 and so if you look at, we talked a little bit about the Ten Commandments last week, but uh, what's the first commandment? Come on, you guys should know this. Thou shalt honor the Lord thy God. Right? See, I even go King James on you because I remember, you know, and, and, and him only shall you worship, right? So it, 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 right at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, it's establishing the priority. Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was. He basically took the first of the ten and he restructured it slightly. But he's God, he can do that. I just have to read to you what he says. I, I, you know what I mean? But, but, so the neighbor, anyone close, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is really easy if your neighbor is a lovely person just like you. Gosh, I wish I had taken a pan of the looks of your faces on that one. Yeah, because I know y'all went the gamut, because I did when I said it, is like, okay, first of all, do I? Second of all, what about that jerk neighbor, right? And then, um, thirdly, well, I don't love myself, you know, and I, I you know, and so, um, Paul here in Romans 15 is, is tapping into that, and then he uses Jesus as the example, I'm hoping to get to four and stop because I want to kind of save five and six for Sunday. But um, in, in verse three, it says, for even Christ did not please himself. Now, to me, even the wording in this is, is, is kind of interesting and I don't quite get it. But he says, for even, um, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now he's quoting from the book of Psalms, chapter 69, verse 9, which is interesting because you have what? One, two, three, four, five, five Old Testament passages just in this particular chapter. We're only going to look at this one a little bit uh, tonight. But it, it, it's a messianic psalm where he is... Uh, really talking about this idea of Jesus' great example of self-denial for the sake of others. 
and and he he you know he and, uh, and he goes to Psalm sixty nine to to bring that out where it says the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Um, and so here you have Jesus as the example who did not please himself, who loved his neighbor, and did good or pleased his neighbor for the good, for their building up, right? Verse 2. And for all of that effort, he, it tells us, the reproaches of those who reproached you, that is, you being, this is the son speaking to the, the father, you being the father fell on me, the son. Now, David David wrote this. I'm pretty sure David wrote this one. And he is speaking to God and saying the reproaches of those who reproached you, God, fell upon me. But it's, it's messianic because David is often a, a representation, a pre-representation of the Messiah, including after David's death, the Messiah a few times, Zechariah and Jeremiah, and I think Ezekiel refer to the Messiah as David. They're not talking about David resurrecting. They're talking about the Messiah. And um, so those who, well, Jesus said it in the the Gospels, um, they have persecuted me, or they persecute me, or they have persecuted me, uh, so they will also do what? They will persecute you. So y- y- you will have here, Christ did not please himself. And you can go a lot of different directions with this, particularly with, the, with, with, with Paul pulling uh, Psalm 69, this idea of the Messiah being reproached. It goes beyond just making yourself happy doesn't it? He could be intimating. Remember, Jewish thinking, they, are in, they imply things sometimes. They don't directly say them, but they imply them. And what he's saying here is not only did the Messiah not please himself, but he wasn't interested in his own self-protection. And so there's a lot, there's a lot of weight in this, these, these little ver- these few verses here, uh, and, and really for us to ask, what is it um, that we are being instructed to do? And as we, we consider, that, that's part of why I want to do the Gospels again, because to me the Gospels were really probably the hardest books in the Bible to read. If you really read them carefully, and you really listen to what Jesus is telling us. And if we really took it to heart, I mean, we could go extreme. Francis read the gospel and it said, sell everything you had and come and follow me. And he took it literally. And uh, he, he was, a, he was a, an heir. He was rather wealthy. And he sold just about everything. He sold everything he had and went and lived in some old abandoned church. And it was a little different. How's that? But anyway, um, but nonetheless, he, he read it and took it literally. Um, Anthony, who, the, who was uh, known as the, really the, one of the first uh, desert fathers, essentially did the, 
same thing in reading the gospel. He went out to the desert just so that he could really seek God. Um, and, and, you know, while he spent all this time with just him and God, then people started coming to him because they recognized that because he had spent time with Jesus, he actually had God's wisdom and he actually had something to say. But anyway, so much for the history lesson. But um, again, with what Paul is saying here, it not only pleased himself but this idea of protection, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So then it goes on to say that for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Remember I talked about hope on Sunday? I think, yeah, I talked about hope on, yeah, I did. Um, And um, so whatever things were written before, what things? What is it referring to here? Any ideas? Yeah, you know, you, you, you might say the Septuagint, but in the Septuagint, you have more than the thirty-nine Old Testament books. Um, that's, and so there was. There was a kind of a battle between that. The Septuagint, if you don't know, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Test- Hebrew Old Testament. Did you say something? The covenants? All of them? I would say all of them. Yeah, the, the covenant. Remember, in Jewish thinking, okay, a covenant. was, was Okay, the first covenant. Okay, your mileage is going to vary on this. For, in my opinion... The first covenant that God made was he made with Abraham. I know that there are others that could be considered like he made one with Noah, okay? But the one that really, and it's the covenant that I'm not going to destroy the earth. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. God makes this incredible covenant with Abraham, and the subsequent covenants that were given, you have God made a covenant with David, right? 2 Samuel 7, I think. Jeremiah 31, God uh, uh, prophesies about a new covenant. In Jewish thinking, the first covenant, particularly the covenant with Abraham, is a covenant that stands because the Lord even declares it as an eternal covenant. Uh, uh, Sinai, that was conditional. That's not an eternal covenant. I knew there was one there I was missing. Okay. But David's the covenant with David, the new covenant, are a, a, you could call them addendums. They do not, they do not uh, nullify the previous covenant, but they add to it. That's what I mean by addendums. And that's how the Jews understood this. I would say it's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. That's, what I, I, that's how I look at this. Or as the Jews like to call them, the Hebrew scriptures whether they're Greek, Septuagint, or the 39 that we have in the Masoretic text. Um, although I, I, for me, I just stick to the 39, even though I, I really like reading the Old Testament out of the English translation of the Septuagint, if that makes sense, right? It, it, uh, and if you don't like that, you can blame that on Ken, because Ken was the one who suggested it to me. 
Anyway, uh, right, Ken? Reading, reading the Septuagint in English? Yeah, See, there you go. Ken Perky endorsed. So, um, but yeah, I just thought, wow, that's a great idea. But um, what I think Paul is telling us in verse 4 is that whatever things that were written before, and he's talking obviously about spiritual writings, you know, and I believe that he's talking about the, the Hebrew scriptures. They were written for our learning that through, now I love this, the patience and comfort of the scriptures. See, that lets the cat out of the bag right there. Because he, he tells you he's, right, he's talking about the scriptures. And he would be, Paul would be, my opinion, Paul, when he refers to the scriptures, he's referring to the Hebrew scriptures, the 39. He's not referring to the Apocrypha. Uh, I read the Apocrypha from time to time. I find it interesting, particularly 1st and 2nd Maccabees, because it's very historic and very informative. I don't teach on them because I don't believe they're inspired. That's just my opinion. Um, but uh, the, the, com the patient and the comfort of the scriptures. Now, he's almost personifying them again, isn't he? He did this earlier in the book of Romans where he essentially personified. In other words, he spoke about the word of God as if it's a person. That's what I mean about personifying. But he's, he's talking about the patience and the comfort of the scriptures, not the patience and the comfort of you. Although I think that's very much implied here. But what is he refer if he's referring to the patient and comfort of the scriptures, what is he referring to? I know it's not an easy question, is it? I love it when you guys ask hard questions because you know, you, know you know what happens when I ask a hard, you guys ask me a hard question. You know it's a hard question for me when I say, that's really a good question, you know, because <laughs> I'm like, oh, I got to think now. I think he's talking about the author of the scriptures. Now, don't think human author either. I think he's talking about God here. The scriptures being the holy word of God. God's patient, and in some respects, something that I don't understand, and, well, there's a lot of different ways we can go with this, and I'm going to none of them tonight, but God's own comfort, where it tells us that we might have hope, or it says that the scriptures might have hope. And if you think about this, if if God has put his word out there for us to learn and for us to um, meditate on, be transformed by, of course, I'll, I'll kind of let some of my thoughts out of the bag on this one. I think this really does talk a lot about our free will. What do, you, what, do you, what do you do with what God has given you? Now, th there's passages and the construction of different doctrines and systematic theologies that some of them I don't really completely understand, but those don't bother me nearly as bad as the ones that I do understand and I think are plain as day, and it's like, wow, I have to read and I have to do what? Heed it. James tells us what? Be doers of the word, 
I referred to this earlier, or a couple weeks ago. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. So you can read it and hear it. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, didn't we? I know people who know the Bible really well, and it's like, are you even a Christian? You just use a lot of good Christian language. Anybody can do that. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer only, lest what? How's it finished? lest you deceive yourself. And so, uh, these things, got a few minutes, these things were written for our example, for our learning, and through which we might have patience. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, tells us, for the word of God is living and powerful, Hebrews 4.12, if you want to write it down. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So as I think about the word of God, and as I allow it to penetrate my soul, separating soul and spirit, which is something I don't want to get into um, and I'm not going to get into tonight because I'm a, di- I'm a dichotomist, not a trichotomist, but I know that's okay too. Um, as I read the Word of God and think about it, it be- starts to help me discern. See, I think it's really a process. Now, you know, I've talked to people, and they like to talk about this instantaneous change. Well, I became a Christian, and then I didn't do this and that, and I'm like, that's great, but you still, you know. So, in other words, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I've met a few people It was like, you know, they, they got saved, recovered from alcoholism, and so it was almost like on the stage. So now you're a sober jerk instead of a, a drunk jerk. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, in other words, what I'm saying is, is that, that, our transformation takes a whole lot longer than I think we really want it or understand that it takes. You know, which is fascinating to me because, I, again, I like reading the early fathers. And two things about them. Most of the ancients, most of the early fathers, and, and even the, 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 the early mothers, they had very short careers in their, in their teaching. Very short. 10, 20, 25 years. Now, some of them exceeded that, of course. And, but pretty much a very short time of where they were teaching, and they were not very well appreciated when they were alive, which I find fascinating. Someone came, came across their writings later and started saying, hey, there's something to this. And, uh, but to be able to spend that time with the Word of God and your mileage may vary, and you do what works for you, and often it is just a few verses. For me to hold a few verses in my mind and in my heart works better. Then I can read a chapter and forget what the first part of the chapter really even began with. You know, I mean, I'm thinking of this chapter that I'm teaching on right here tonight, and I'm thinking there's a ton of great stuff in there, but I can't even, if, without looking, I probably couldn't articulate to you what it is right now. Because that's, you know, that's how my brain works. And 
but to allow it to really begin to do the process. And I think is the scripture, we talked about this a little bit last night or last Wednesday, when we're confronted with God's truth, then now, and we recognize it as such, then now has God, the Spirit of God has something to work with in our hearts. Does that make sense? And kind of really just give some greater thought to it. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration literally means God breathed. Or inspiration of God, that phrase literally means God breathed. In other words, the Scripture is breathed by the Spirit of God into the minds of those who were called to write it. Now, <clears throat> there are different views on this. Some people think that God just took somebody and turned them into a fax machine, right? And said, this is what I want you to write. This is how I want it done. And, and, and the, the inspiration was so um, specific. I tend to think that God worked with the personalities and the educational level. We see that partic- a lot in the, even in the Old Testament. Uh, worked with the personalities, education level, the cultural understanding of that particular day and worked within that framework because he is the master builder. And he can turn a mansion into anything. And yet, uh, all scripture is given by inspiration as God breathed and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Which, let's go back to Romans 14, 15 again. If it says in verse 4, that for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that through patience and comfort of the scriptures we might have hope, um, it also takes me back to verse 2 with this idea of pleasing his neighbor for good, leading to edification. And the necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And how important it is that we minister out of and from our time with God and but we spend enough time with God that his spirit is able to feed us and to build us up and to strengthen us and to encourage us so that when we do the good work we do we are already tuned in to what the Holy Spirit is leading us to and therefore, we are being led of the Holy Spirit to do what we do. And therefore, then God, not only does God get, I hate to say this. I'll probably, I better not say it. Okay. Not only does God get the glory, but I think God has the ability to have more of an effect, even if we do not see the effect that the Spirit of God has on another person. Does that make sense? You know, so 